America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. Yes. Happy Easter to everyone out there. It's the Daily Attic Podcast with your boy Tim and your boy Dave. Hey. We're here live and direct on Easter Sunday. And today we have a live show, of course, with the Don't Punish Pain Rally um, featuring Claudia Mirandi. Welcome, Claudia. Hey, guys. Happy Easter. You too. Happy Easter. Um, very happy. strange Easter, but um, nevertheless, still we're doing the best we can. How are you doing? You're hanging in there just trying to, um, you know, I stick with my routine. My routine, like many of you know, is my savior. Uh, for me, I'm still getting up, training, eating clean, and just working. You know, I that's what keeps me sane. I hope everybody has found their new normal. It is tough, but, you know, it's really difficult, especially for the pain community, but Ironically, not much has changed for the pain community because this has been their normal for many, many years. So for the healthy people, this is now their new normal, and they're experiencing uh, much of what we've been experiencing. So, you know, we'll get through it. You know, that's funny um, that you say that because I've I've been having the same sentiment, and I have a lot, we have a lot of pain patients and um, chronic pain sufferers that follow us on Twitter. And I'm, I'm watching them. I'm watching their comments. And a lot of them are, you know, Hey, this is how it is for us all the time. So it really opens up people's eyes to what people are, the challenges that people have when all of a sudden they're put in this predicament when you can't get what you need, basically. Right. Everybody's kind of in this predicament. Now you need something and um, you know, you can't get it. Um, so that's, that's a good parallel. And I think it's important. <laughs> yeah. It's an unfortunate parallel, but you know, I've done time. I've done hard time in isolation many years in a hospital bed. So, um, I can count ceiling tiles like no, like nobody's business. It's unfortunate that we needed a pandemic to light the fire under the DEA, uh, to kick up production of opiates. And this is the same agency who cut production. But we'll get to that later in the show. I don't want to go off on a tangent just yet. Hi, everybody. Yeah, welcome everybody to the show. We have a lot of people in the chat already. We have Shaggy, Melissa. I want to say hi to um, everyone up there. Michelle, uh, we had a good conversation with her on a live show. Uh, BJTX, uh, Pain Management UT, or Manage Pain UT. I see you guys all in the chat room. We're going to kind of reserve the second half of the show if you want to call in and ask any questions because we have Claudia, but we also have another special guest uh, today joining us. Um, Claudia, you care to uh, bring Ron in? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to give a background of how I met attorney Ron Chapman about maybe over three months ago. I was on, you know, I'm always researching doctor's cases and I'm a non-lawyer. I'm a retired court reporter. And Ron Chapman's name popped out at me. So I went right on his website and I said, this guy won't, you know, I never hear back from a lot, most attorneys. Well, I emailed Ron and he, he called me back. And I think Ron was getting on a plane 
or a train, something like that. So welcome to the show. Hey, Ron Chapman. Hi, Claudia. Thanks for the introduction. Um, yeah. thanks, for, thanks for having me here. And yeah. happy Easter to everybody. Thanks. And, you know, Ron, I watched last week on Netflix how to fix a drug scandal. And when I got done watching it, my first thought was, oh, my God, how does Ron Chapman do this job? Because <laughs> my first thought was, these doctors don't have a chance. Who has a chance when going up against the Department of Justice? So if you all haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. How to, uh, how to Fix a Drug Scandal Happened at My Neck of the Woods. Uh, so Ron is uh, a defense attorney, and he defends uh, many medical providers, healthcare professionals. So that's how I have met Ron. And Ron, I, I think I've told you, every time I talk with Ron, I say, you know what, Ron? I like you. Uh, he's receptive. Um, and I just like, I like everything about Ron. I've not met him. He's young. And uh, that's why I wanted to have Ron on the show, because I, I needed to pick your brain. So, Ron, I'm going to start off with, um, there's so many questions I have to ask you, and I hope I've nailed all of my questions. You've been defending doctors for how long? Oh, let's see, probably going on about six or seven years now. And before that, um, I was a prosecutor for the Marine Corps. Oh, that explains everything. So you were a prosecutor. Okay, because so many prosecutors head over to the defense side. So you know both sides of the fence, Ron. Yeah, so let me tell you something about that. Um, I, I never thought I'd be a defense attorney. Uh, I thought I was going to be a prosecutor. I was one of those one of those guys who had a nice tight haircut and did everything the right way and, um, and ended up getting assigned as a prosecutor. And I realized that as a prosecutor, um, when you're good at what you do and you pay attention, it's very easy to put people in jail. Um, sure. It's very easy to put innocent people in jail. It's very mm-hmm. easy to put guilty people in jail. Um, now, now, I never knowingly put anybody who I believe was innocent in jail, but I will tell you that the system um, is, is absolutely stacked, stacked up against those people who find themselves on the other side of the table in a courtroom from a prosecutor. And, uh, you know, the, the reality is, is that our, our defense bar um, in, in this regard, with respect to, to representing physicians, is not as strong as it could be. And so uh, mm-hmm. when I got out, um, I loved criminal law. I wanted to still do it. And um, I decided to join a healthcare law firm and open up a criminal division in that firm so that we could exclusively defend healthcare providers who were being uh, subjected to scrutiny by the DEA and by um, federal prosecutors. And that's what we've done for the last uh, six or seven years. You know, as a court reporter, when I would see it, when I sat in the courtroom, I never looked at it from a prosecutor's point of view or a defense attorney's point of view. I would just, it's awful. But, you know, when you're sitting in the courtroom, you actually come to an assumption he's guilty, she's innocent, either or. But you're right, Ron. When you're a prosecutor, you know, my sister was a prosecutor. It's so much easier. And as an as a defense attorney, especially for doctors, you have to work so hard. So I want for the doctors that are listening to this at a later time, Ron, how can doctors what how do we avoid them being visited by the D, by the DEA, by the medical boards? Uh, what's the first thing we can do for doctors and what do you offer to them? Well, so the first thing, Claudia, great question, is that um, 
we need physicians to understand that they operate in a highly regulated industry, just like the airline industry, just like pharmaceutical manufacturers. And there, there are many ways to violate the law, even, even unknowingly in, in this arena. Um, and, and so those physicians who decide to go out and operate in the pain management sphere, which many physicians have found themselves unknowingly involved in because of the lack of pain specialists available, um, they need to, to up their compliance. They need to make sure that they're they're um, having a little bit more heightened scrutiny uh, towards towards following federal rules and regulations and ensuring that they don't step outside of the, the rules and regulations. Now, the thing that makes that so difficult for doctors is that the DEA keeps keeps changing the rules. Um, the CDC guidelines come out and they change the um, the world of pain management drastically. DEA issues guidance which changes. Um, the world of pain management drastically. And so the only thing that I can recommend somebody who isn't in the crosshairs of the DEA already to avoid being in the crosshairs of the DEA is to have a compliance program, have a compliance officer, routinely ensure that you get checkups from a compliance attorney or, or somebody who's skilled in compliance and ensure that you're not violating the law. Because many physicians out there um, are unintentionally and stepping outside of, of DEA regulations, and it's unfortunate. Um, okay. There's also a number of things that physicians can do just to sort of stay below the radar is the way I like to say it. Now, listen, um, this is just the reality of things. If a physician is out there prescribing more than anybody in the state, more oxycodone, more hydrocodone, more Dilaudid than anybody in the state, they're going to get a visit from the DEA. And so one surefire way to ensure that um, you avoid unnecessary scrutiny is by ensuring that you're not an outlier for the number of procedures that you do or prescriptions that you write. And that's what a lot of physicians have decided to do. And that's why a lot of pain patients aren't getting the care that they need and that they deserve because physicians are um, cutting, cutting themselves off on, on treating patients or, or uh, weaning patients' dosages down. Um, the advice that I would have for those physicians is to make sure that have a good network of other providers that they can go to and turn to um, when they've reached sort of the limit of their patient population that they can skillfully handle. And that's why so many pain management um, practices, when you call, they say, we're not accepting any new patients because they're already considered to be high prescribers and they're already on the DEA's or the medical board's radar. Uh, so if an attorney, if a doctor wanted to hire your firm or a compliance officer or a compliance program, you could have somebody from your office visit the doctor's office and, and just be sure that they're in, in compliance, they're following protocols. My question is, let's say a doctor does everything right, and because they had your firm in their office practicing compliance, does that give uh, the doctor an extra layer of security? Absolutely. Um, in fact, we fly across the country routinely visiting doctors' offices and pharmacies and doing compliance checkups to ensure that they're compliant or give them tips to be more compliant. And what we traditionally do for those physicians um, or, or pharmacies or you know, other practitioners is um, write a report for them. And the report has three categories of information, those things that um, – you, you are doing that you need to revise so that you stay in compliance with federal law or state law. Um, those things that you're doing that you're doing very well 
and those things that you need to immediately stop doing. And then once the practitioner makes those changes, we issue a second report. And that second report is essentially discussing their business practices and, and indicating that this practice has made the necessary changes to be com- compliant. Now, there's a, there's a federal law or custom out there called the advice of counsel defense. And that means when an attorney has given you advice and they've given you that advice in writing, um, that becomes an absolute defense to any charges later on. So if, if I were to say, um, we recommend that you randomly urine drug test your patients um, who are in a medium risk category at least once every three months, and a doctor does that, and the DEA comes down or there's some sort of indictment um, and the doctor needs to defend him or herself, uh, they would they would introduce that letter as evidence in the case, and it would be part of their defense that they uh, went along with the advice of their attorney. Okay, so that so that's step one. How do we keep the DEA out of the office? And that's bring compliance in. Do you have any retired DEA agents that you use as compliance officers, or are your compliance people attorneys? Um, I, I use retired DEA um, agents and uh, diversion investigators. I find the diversion investigators are the best, and there's one that I use who, who operates out of Philadelphia who's been very helpful for me. Um, but that's not always necessary, and it's very difficult to find folks from the DEA who've decided to jump to the other side. In fact, there's a culture in federal law enforcement where traditionally you don't go over to the defense side. Right, um, right. Many, many, many former DEA agents and diversion investigators uh, choose to, to go and work for the large pharmaceutical companies as opposed mm-hmm. to defending um, independent physicians and, and practitioners. But that being said, you don't need a DEA agent to do compliance. You just need somebody who's either an attorney or a compliance analyst smart enough and uh, up to date with the federal rules and regulations uh, to help you out. And, and, and here's the thing, and, and I think that this will be helpful for, um, for, for the audience. Uh, many doctors, um, instead of going and getting compliance assistance and advice to ensure that they're doing it the right way, make drastic decisions that hurt their patients and hurt their practice. So what I'm, what I'm saying is when the CDC guidelines came out and, um, Every physician saw that a person above 90 MMEs became a high-risk category. Um, 90 morphine milligram equivalents became a high-risk category. Um, physicians across the board, primary care physicians, started cutting every patient who was receiving medication above that dose down. In fact, many of the people who listen to this podcast may have had that happen to them. That was the wrong way of going about it. If you would have talked to a compliance analyst all you or my firm, all you would have needed to do is to um, increase um, the monitoring and assessment of those patients who are receiving higher doses. Uh, Maybe check them for um, signs of diversion or, um, you know, increase the the amount of patient visits or patient appointments that they have, those sorts of things. And and so these these drastic... Yeah, these, these drastic approaches by, by physicians that they thought they were doing for the right reason ended up being for the wrong reason and ended up impacting the pain population. Right. And boy, have they been affected. Because, Ron, I probably get over 200 requests a week to advocate. Um, they come in all day, all night, and it's the same scenario. Um, my doctor cut me down and my former doctor was arrested. Why are we mm-hmm. seeing... So this is, I want to I break this down, especially for the pain patient. You're sitting in your doctor's office and the DEA comes in 
and they come in hard. They're in SWAT gear. Now, is there a difference between the diversion agents and special agents, or are they the same? Who, who are these people that come in in SWAT gear? With Good guns? question. So two types of DEA. The first are DEA agents, which are law enforcement officers, and they have badges and guns. The second type are DEA diversion investigators. And diversion investigators um, were um, used or are used by the DEA to deal with the DEA's administrative monitoring requirements. So the DEA doesn't just go and bust down the doors of drug dealers. Um, they also need to ensure that pharmacies and doctors are in compliance with the Controlled Substances Act. And so diversion investigators are not law enforcement officers. In fact, I think they only go through six or eight weeks of training in Quantico as opposed to the, the larger um, agent school. And, and, and they simply are there to um, visit doctors and in some cases investigate them, but they don't kick down doors and they don't wear SWAT gear. So if, if a patient is sitting in a, in a doctor's office and is the subject or is the office is the target of a raid, generally there's going to be a combination of law enforcement, DEA agents, Likely there will be local involvement, so the county sheriff's um, office may be involved. And then in addition, there may be some sort of state police or state narcotics team involvement. And the reason why they coordinate with all of the law enforcement um, teams is because kicking down doors of doctors is cool these days, and everybody wants to have a part of it. So um, they, they get geared up with the cool pants and the big rifles, and they act like they're about to take down Pablo Escobar. Um, but all they're really doing is taking down some 85-year-old doctor and um, investigating his pain patients who've been living with, you know, terrible Ugh. pain for the last 10 or 15 years. So just so dirty, so dirty. You know, Ron, I worked with the feds, and I swear I used to, like, I have Crohn's disease. I would get a Crohn's flare-up in the middle of um, when I was the steno for the federal grand jury, and I would say, oh, God, I wish I never heard what I'm hearing because it was so dirty and wrong. And the yeah. fact that this is happening to our doctors with patients in the offices, it, it's incomprehensible. So let's fast forward a little bit. Now, um, it seems like uh, you've got your cops, your DEA agents, and then you've got your investigators. Are the investigators the ones that are going to sequester the doctor and say, you know, if you just hand over your license, we'll make this process go a whole lot easier because doctors don't know difference. They, they don't know cops. They, they're just doctors. And I remember yeah. a conversation you and I had and you said, never surrender your DEA registration. Is it going to be uh, the diversion investigator that's doing the talking Usually not. Um, so you're absolutely right. Do not ever surrender a DEA registration. There is, there's no universe that I can think of in which the surrender of a DEA registration during the execution of a raid or a search warrant is a good idea. I just can't think of a single circumstance. Um, the reason why the DEA agents, and it would be the agents, not the diversion investigators um, in this situation, the reason why the agents pressure um, doctors and other providers to surrender their registration is because right now there's this little office in, I believe it's Arlington, Virginia, with two or three judges, administrative law judges in it. And those two or three judges are the only judges in the United States who hear DEA registration cases. 
And of all of the doctors getting their doors kicked down in the United States, I think there's thousands of registrations that are disciplined per year. With all of those doctors, if every one of them fought their case, there'd be an incredible backlog in um, dealing with these administrative hearings and taking registrations away from doctors. So what the DEA has decided to do is they changed the rules and they said that the surrender of a DEA registration is effective as soon as it's delivered to a DEA agent. And they gave the DEA agents the authority to go out and present doctors after they kick down their door, after they start interviewing their patients, after they threaten them with criminal prosecution, after they uh, sit them in a chair and tell them that they're, they're not able to leave, after they isolate them from their staff and their patients and their family, uh, after they tell them that they're rummaging through their house and searching through their belongings, they present them with this piece of paper and they say, you can sign this and it all goes away. And many, many, many doctors, even some of the most intelligent doctors I know, even Harvard-trained physicians, sign on that line and they give away their DEA registration. And the loss of a DEA registration is, um, is catastrophic for a physician. You'll lose board privileges, the ability to... Um, to be on uh, on a hospital um, panel, to be able to see patients in a hospital, uh, it may lead to the loss of state licensure. It'll be reported for a lifetime on something called the National Practitioner's Data Bank. And unfortunately, the only thing that we can do once a doctor does that is file an injunction in federal court, which my firm has done and we've won many times, um, but it's a very costly and time-consuming process. Mm-hmm. Because usually by the time, when doctors usually find me, it's after they're broken. Their spouses have left them. They're penniless. They're usually crying most of the day. And when they call me, they ask, can you help? And that's usually when I contact you, as I've done, you know, several times in the past. So step one, get a compliance officer in there. Step two, never, ever, ever surrender your license. Uh, and I know there's many different clinics throughout the country that are being hosted by uh, like medical societies where they offer these sessions to doctors. But by the time a doctor, I know in Colorado, a doctor contacted me, she said, oh, my God, we just sat through DEA training and I'm, re- I'm never practicing pain management again. You know, we need to remove the fear of practicing because we have 40 million people who suffer with chronic pain and maybe we have 10,000 doctors in the country who are prescribing. So, um, okay. So the DEA is coming to the office. A doctor is, um, pooping their pants. They don't know what to do. They don't know. Do I believe them? They're cops. What should I do? Uh, we're going to, we have some doctors that say, screw you, get the hell out of my office. I'm calling my lawyer. They contact their lawyer and then that's where the, the investigation, I would imagine, begins. So a doctor contacts you and you, you know, create a file or whatever. Um, and then you start the discovery process. Is that the next step or do you contact yeah. the medical board? That, that, that's right. So the first, the first mistake that many doctors make after they've been the subject of a raid is they go call the attorney who did their will or who uh, did their divorce or who... Um, maybe dealt with a business dispute and they say, uh, Hey, in trouble, need a lawyer. And that person will say, great, I'd love to take care of you. Or they'll refer them to the, the, the nearest white collar defense attorney that, that they can find. And the problem is, is that the approach for dealing with these types of cases 
um, is not the typical white collar defense approach of a federal defense attorney. Um, you need to have a lot of healthcare knowledge to be able to fight the government in these cases, because the reality is, is that the prosecutors who are going up against doctors in this arena are specifically trained to deal with DEA type cases. Um, they've got a lot of experience with those cases because Jeff Sessions decided to create sort of a cadre of, of, of attorneys to deal with physicians. Um, and, and they're operating by a playbook, which is very well written and very well executed by the Department of Justice. Um, so the attorney who doesn't know that and doesn't know what they're walking into will easily be, be blindsided and spend way too much time and money trying to figure out what they don't know. Mm-hmm. So um, the approach that I generally recommend for physicians is a very tailored approach. And, and Claudia, we spoke about this um, yesterday. Um, the first thing that a, a physician needs to do is understand exactly what the case is against them. Oftentimes, um, when an indictment is handed down, the, the formal charges for a doctor, um, it will say that this person uh, engaged in a drug conspiracy, the same statute that they would use against any drug dealer. And then also it would charge them with a few specific patients that they allegedly dealt drugs to. Um, and many, many physicians move forward and defend their case on the basis of those patients, but what they don't realize is what will happen at their trial is the Department of Justice will introduce patient records of all of the worst patients that that physician has. Mm. All of those tiny little mistakes that that doctor made will now be splashed all over a courtroom and it will make them look very bad. And what we typically do, go out and we find those patients that have a real human story. Um, In fact, gentlemen, there was a case that I dealt with not too far away from you in Cairo, Michigan, of a doctor named Dr. Ostrom. And I can speak about it because I think it's been widely reported in the press. Um, He was from Cairo and he was raided. Um, Very sad case. He was, uh, I think, a Johns Hopkins physician who was credited with developing a test called the PSA, which is the marker for, I believe, uh, prostate cancer. And so he made a bit of money out of that and decided to open up a a practice in in, um, Michigan, and he opened up quite a few. Well, the doctor next to him passed away, and he took on a lot of her patients, um, and these patients were pain patients, and the doctor had a big heart. And when people in the area found out that this doctor prescribed uh, controlled substances, well, of course, he got inundated with a significant number of patients. And very quickly, the local uh, authorities, smelling big bucks because the guy, had, uh, Dr. Osterling, had a bit of money and a decent estate from his prior research and development. I want to find out what, what happened with the doctor there, but we have a lot of questions in the live chat. We have a lot of people in there right now, and they want to know how they can get this information to their doctor. And I want to let everyone know that this uh, this podcast is being recorded. It'll be on YouTube. It'll be on iTunes. It'll be on Google, Stitcher, every format. Uh, we'll release it here in this week. So if you wanted to get this information to your doctor, you could refer them to the link. You can share the show now, or you can have them contact. Um, um, do you have websites or contact information? We'll do that at the end of the show. We'll give you guys, you know, contact information for Ron, Claudia, and, and all that stuff. So um, just to answer those questions, but we can continue uh, with the show if you guys. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So feel free to put my information in the show notes if you like. Okay, excellent. Yeah, we definitely want to um, get the word out to the doctors before this happens. We want to bring compliance uh, officers into the doctor's practice so we can avoid this and keep these doctors working and, you know, keep the patients uh, 
they, you know, they need their medication. So Ron, you were talking about the doc. I am familiar with this case, uh, the doctor in Michigan. He, he, it seems like he inherited all of his, um, partners, patients, and that is so common. Um, and if these doctors have big hearts and they take on all these pain patients, uh, there's bound to be problems. So go ahead, Ron, finish. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. So, so, so Dr. Osterling took on the patients of this doctor who worked next to him and he has a big heart. So he continued to treat them and he would work 18 hours a day driving to various practices, helping these patients out. And the government, uh, sniffed, um, you know, what they usually do, found out they had, had some money, decided to raid and then use asset forfeiture law to seize virtually all of his assets. Um, he hired the local attorney, um, but quickly decided to move on to a firm like mine because we specialize in defending doctors like this. And we got about the business of preparing a defense for him. So we gathered up all of those patients that we possibly could have that had an important story. And of course, in a, in a pain management practice, that's not hard to find. Um, you know, uh, women who'd been involved in a car accident uh, who were uh, really, really injured by, um, or, or in a lot of pain as a result of their injuries, um, other people who I think we had an example of one person who was crushed when a, uh, a dump truck dumped a whole bunch of dirt on top of him when he was working, and and just a just a whole bunch of stories from patients that were were tear jerking, and um, so we brought those patients into the trial. Uh, we also included a lot of evidence about how this doctor was trying to rotate doses and cycle doses of, of patients in order to ensure that he properly treated their pain with the least amount of narcotics possible. And so the jury trial lasted about a month, and um, we had the jury out for about six hours, um, and they came back with not guilty on all counts. And so Dr. Osterling was vindicated. And, and it's rare for, for a doctor to, to win a trial um, against wow. the government in cases like this. Yeah, but, That's a month. But inter interestingly, after the, uh, the not guilty finding, um, we, we placed a call to the prosecutor's office and said, so you're going to give us back uh, the millions of dollars that you took from my client. And they said, absolutely not. Forfeiture law gives us the ability to keep this even without a conviction. And, and we said, well, we'll see about that. And so we went to the appellate court. And uh, last year, this was, a, I think, about a, a three or four year battle. Last year, the appellate court decided to give Dr. Ostrowing, um all of his money back, everything that he'd ever uh, earned from his research and development and uh, development of, of other practices. And so he wasn't made whole. He went through four years of misery um, and uh, cost right. him a lot of money. Absolutely. But, but eventually he was able to, um, to piece his life back together. But, but here's the moral of the story. Do you know how many doctors that prosecutor's office has prosecuted since then? No, mm. I can imagine. Not mm. a single one. Awesome. Not a single oh, one. That's wonderful. So, so, so the moral of the story is when we get these doctors good defenses and uh, we whip the government around the courtroom, um, we, will, we will impact change. Um, they will stop overzealously going after doctors who are just trying to treat their patients. That's what I firmly can, I, can I interrupt real quick, Ron? I just wanted to yeah. say that um, being a former prosecutor, you understand the advantage that the prosecution has, uh, you know, because the the DEA or the sheriff's office or whoever is investigating, they share all the information with the prosecution and it's their goal together 
to get, you know, a guilty verdict. And, and when you're on the defense side of it, you don't have access to everything all the time. Am I speaking on a term saying that, or is that true? No, you're absolutely right. So for some reason in federal cases, there's still not a rule that allows a defendant to get all of the discovery in their case, meaning all of the information that's been developed. There's, there's a rule that allows um, them to get specific categories of information, but there are still things that are withheld until virtually the last minute. For instance, there's a federal law that actually, it's called the Jenks Act. It actually says that you don't get to have the prior statements of a witness when they testify on the stand, including law enforcement, until after that person finishes their direct examination by the prosecution. So the way this is technically supposed to work is a cop gets up on the stand, says a whole bunch of bad things about my client, a doctor. And then I get to say, okay, you know, Zach Morris saved by the bell timeout. Can I have all of his prior statements, right? And then they give me the prior statements and I get to read them very quickly. And then I get to do my cross-examination. Um, I still do not understand why there's a federal law that doesn't allow me to get that information weeks, months, That's or it's like it's like yeah it would be like uh ron chapman uh he's minus 10 on the trial today <laughs> yeah. uh, we're giving him <laughs> if you want to bet on the tri- well people got to find something to bet on now because they can't bet on sports so maybe this is a good avenue that actually it's in poor taste but it's a joke so anyways ron, yeah. i have a quick question so if sure. you decide to move forward with the trial are, do, the, do the doctors have to fly into Virginia or are these trials being held in their home state? And that's the first question. And what, yeah. what, so if this happened um, to a doctor in Rhode Island, which I police everything that happens in Rhode Island to prevent this from happening, but let's say one of my prescribers um, gets raided by the DEA, which doesn't happen in Rhode Island, and I'm not sure why. There is an office here. But the FBI has been here, but not the DEA. Would a doctor be able to have his trial in Rhode Island if the feds were yeah, involved? Let me clarify something there. So there's there's two trials we're talking about. The first one is um, related to getting your DEA registration back. And that's that's an administrative hearing as opposed to a trial. And that's what mm-hmm. I was referring to would be handled by those three judges in Virginia. Um, so if you if you don't sign away your registration and you say DEA come and get it, then they have to take you to court, and that would be in Virginia, or the hearing could happen in in your your local area. Now that's separate from a criminal charge and a trial and a criminal charge. When it comes to being charged criminally, when a doctor's charged uh, under the criminal law, uh, under the Controlled Substances Act is the actual law, um, that trial would have to be held in the jurisdiction where the crime occurred. And there's very strict laws with respect to jurisdiction and where trials um, have to happen. And, uh, and, and likely that would be in the home state and in the home federal district of that doctor. All right. So we know what to do if the DEA comes a knocking and we know how to prevent them from coming um, from terrorizing you. Let's discuss the medical boards now, because it seems like the medical boards work in tandem with the DEA. Um, if a doctor, for the doctors who are listening, if um, you know recently a doctor, uh, the medical boards um, contact the doctor and they want to review some of their charts, that's never a good thing, I would imagine, uh, to have your state medical board. So is it legal? Let's, that's question number one. 
Well, so when state medical boards are, are governed by the, the individual states. And so the question, is it legal, would be dependent upon what state you're talking about. In Michigan, for instance, there is a rule that allows the medical board to go and inspect files of patients when, when they would like. And, and that must be disconcerting to hear uh, from the pain patients out there because there's a lot of private information. Um, but there is a HIPAA exception, um, which is the rule that protects patient records to allow state boards to investigate. Um, Florida is another state that has one. California has a similar rule. In fact, I think most states do. Um, but the problem facing pain management physicians out there is once there is uh, one issue with them, they're rated by the right. DEA, there's state licensing discipline, um, or, or somebody believes they're overprescribing, that the number of, we call them collateral consequences in the legal world, but the number of different things that doctor has to do to get him or herself out of hot water is is just, there's a suffering amount of things. You have a, a state board, as you indicated, a DEA registration, potential criminal charge. You have um, hospital privileges that you would have to fight for. And that that spreads even wealthy physicians thin um, and prevents right. them from being able to fully defend themselves. Yeah, it, but that's a common, uh, most doctors who contact me say, you know what, Claudia, the... Um, somebody that sat on the medical board, he was, uh, I was his competition and he's ruined my life. He's made it his life's mission to shut my practice down. And this, this is common. And I had no idea there was such venom in the medical community, the jealousy between colleagues. Um, what's your take on that? Is this something that's happening or are my doctors delusional? No, Claudia, your, your doctors aren't delusional. It's happening all over the place, and it's very unfortunate. In fact, in that case, the Dr. Australian case that I told you about earlier, um, one of his, his competitors uh, was one of the people who initiated the complaint against him because he wanted to get Dr. Osterling out of the market um, because he was comp such stiff competition. Um, but interestingly, he also offered and was slated to testify as an expert at the trial. Right. Um, so here we had yes. the government putting we had the government putting the competitor of a physician on the scene. He ultimately didn't testify because we argued to the judge that he wasn't qualified and, and he was kept out. But they they actually sought to do that. It, it seems like um, the government will cut deals with just about anybody to get them on the stand and say bad things about a physician these days, including their competitors. And it's, you know, I know a lot of doctors say to me, Claudia, it wasn't worth the fight. So I just said, I won't practice again. And I, I, you know, I took a plea deal and, but they're innocent and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, um, comes across my Google feed. Uh, this doctor lost his license for pre prescribing outside the, uh, control substances act or over prescribing or prescribing outside the guidelines. And I have a, a, you know, I make up graphics every three days. And I say, if you see this doctor was, uh, charged with prescribing outside, that's code for, we couldn't get this doctor on anything else, but it's a kangaroo court. And, and, you know, I say, who's policing the medical boards? Nobody, because they're appointed and these medical boards are immune. But you know who's not immune? The Federation of Medical Boards. They're a nonprofit. And it seems like they're at the helm of all of this insanity. 
And I know there's a few doctors that have lawsuits against the Federation of Medical Boards. So we know what to do if the medical, look, if I'm a doctor and my state medical board comes in to my office, I'm calling Ron Chapman. And I, you know, I, I support Ron. I don't make any money off of Ron, um, you know, supporting him just like Tim and Dave. But I just think, you know, Ron knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. And just this conversation I know is going to give doctors um, a whew, you know what I mean? So yeah. we know this is happening. This is a real thing. Hateful colleagues ratting out one another. These doctors are left penniless. They're left without their families. Um, and so we have over 10,000 members. I cannot tell you the number of Don't Punish Pain Rally members who've sat down with their doctors. And three years ago, this conversation was not being had. But these members say, doctor, are you afraid to prescribe? And their guard comes down. And those doctors call me and say, my patient is a Don't Punish Pain Rally member. How can I get involved? And when I talk with the doctor, I send them to Ron. So this was, you know, it was just like this collab, you know, it's a collaborative effort every day taking care of the patients. Now, a big question, Ron, um, you're my doctor. So my doctor gets rated uh, all the time. I hear this from patients. I can't get my charts. The DEA has them. Mm. Can a patient get their chart back? Absolutely. So the way federal law is interpreted and many state laws is that that chart is actually the property of the patient. And what the DEA should be doing is taking and seizing those charts only for a certain period of time so that they can make copies of that evidence and then deliver either those copies or the original chart back to the provider so that continuity of care can be met. Unfortunately, with the number of raids and with the, the lacks a basical attitude towards policies and procedures by many DEA agents. We've seen that those charts are seized and kept indefinitely and patients can't get them back. In addition, we've seen patients stigmatized because their doctor had the misfortune to be raided by the DEA as if uh, the act of a raid says something about the legitimacy of the care to that patient, which is incredibly misguided. Um, the advice that I would have for people out there whose physician's office has been raided is to contact the DEA and um, attempt to get the file and then contact them in writing and attempt to get the file. And if those two approaches don't work, contact the attorney's office. And I've helped many patients do the same thing as well. Um, contact the attorney's office or the attorney of the doctor who was, who was raided and attempt to get the chart that way. Um, but, but those charts are absolutely the property of the patient so that they can take them to their new provider. Now, with respect to the stigma associated with a patient who um, has had their provider rated, um, it's, it's harder to provide advice in that context because uh, many physicians are afraid of taking on the patient population of a recently rated provider. We, we sort of call it squeezing, squeezing the balloon, where one provider is rated, you sort of squeeze the balloon and all of those patients go to another provider, the DEA rates them, and then it continues on. And, and many physicians are wise to this fact. The DEA sort of follows the patient population and raids every doctor on the way down. And so they simply just don't want to touch the patient. Um, the only thing that I would say is that you're going to have to find a way to get into um, a, a pain management provider or, or some primary care provider that can start vouching for you with, with other providers. So if you go back to your PCP as opposed to your pain specialist, have a conversation with them, have them check you out and write you a referral 
that may be a better way than just simply calling up or knocking on the doors of, of new, um, new pain management right, providers. Right. I, you know, I say, you know, we, my legislation, the reason I had legislation sponsored was so we could get the fear out of primary care physicians treating their patients' pain because who knows your patient better than your primary care physician. But that's a, forget that, that doesn't happen. And I I get on the phone with primary care physicians for patients and they say, hell no, am I prescribing to them? They don't even want to prescribe for acute pain, you know, for the seven day, um, you know, pain, whatever, to control someone's pain after an injury. So we know what to do if the state medical boards come knocking. We know what to do. Uh, bring compliance in, contact Ron Chapman or a, another criminal defense firm. Once you get to not an administrative hearing, but let's say you go to trial, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're representing Joel Smithers because I, I am in contact with Angel. Um, why are these doctors getting these obscene sentences? Joel Smithers has been sentenced to prison for 40 years. Jesus. And Angel is... And Angel is at, is at home caring for their five children. Uh, their baby, I believe, just turned a year. 40 years. Some cartel members aren't getting 40 years. Why the long sentences, Ron? That is insane. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Claudia. And, and I'm very familiar with uh, Joel's case. Um, and, and I have to speak very carefully only to public information that I'm aware of. So I apologize if I have to be sort of short when specifically talking about that case. But in, in, in Joel's case, um, he had the misfortune of not having the resources available to pay um, an attorney, a private defense attorney. And so he was required to go to a court-appointed defense attorney. Now, there are many hardworking public defenders out there who need a fine job. But asking a public defender to take care of a healthcare case like this is sort of like asking um, somebody who doesn't do corporate mergers and acquisitions, but does um, wills and estates to handle a merger and acquisition. It's just a huge learning curve to, to deal with. And, and so he had a court-appointed attorney who apparently was trying as hard as he could, but just wasn't getting it done. Uh, Joel wrote to the court many times asking for a new attorney, asking to fire his attorney, saying that he hadn't met with his attorney and his attorney didn't you know, call witnesses or get an expert or do any of that. Um, and after many attempts, the judge shot him down every single time. And uh, ultimately, um, there was a final motion to uh, dismiss his his attorney that he had. The judge agreed to hear it the day that the jury was supposed to come in for trial. The judge denied that final motion for a new attorney. The trial proceeded. And I think it was about two weeks and they found him guilty. And then, and then shortly thereafter, maybe a month or so after, he was sentenced to this uh, insane sentence of 40 years. And the reason why physicians are getting um, uh, sentences like, remember Johnny Depp from Blow, George Young? I, yeah. I, I, I constantly say that all these sentences these doctors are, are getting are very similar to the sentence that George Young got, you know, something like 20 to 40 years um, in federal prison. But the thing is, these guys are nothing like George Young. They're not packing Cessnas full of cocaine and flying them from Columbia, right? They're trying to treat pain patients, but yet they're getting the exact same sentence. So under federal law, um, doctors are sentenced as if they're common drug dealers. And so the way that you sentence a a common drug dealer in federal court is you take the weight of all their drugs because federal law says the the weight of the drugs gives us a good idea of how criminally responsible they are. 
And you add up all of that weight and you convert that into a formula, which basically spits out a number of years in prison. Now, right. when it comes to oxycodone or hydrocodone, the weight is incredible. I mean, sure. a doctor who's practicing for three weeks and prescribing to 20 patients a day would likely have enough weight to beat any street level crack dealer in, in, in the middle of Detroit or Chicago or New York, um, just, just by practicing for a few weeks. Now, now let's take a physician who's been practicing for a year or two years or three years and is indicted in a conspiracy. The weight will be high enough to put them in jail for life. That now, is judging, insane. That is isn't it disgusting? And, and, and I think insane. Angel Smithers, Angel Smithers said it would. It's the equivalent of Joel flying in a football field filled with marijuana. That's that's how Absolutely. his sentence well, there, was on the, based. On the other side of that, on the drug war side of it, and that's the cut. That's the side that we cover, of course. Yeah, we see yeah. parallels now. Now it's coming to the legal side because once this entity, the DEA, and you can do any, you know, you can put any three-letter agency in there at this point. Once they get rolling in their self, uh, you know, they're motivated and their funds are brought upon their success upon prosecution. Then you mm -hmm. see this machine going, and it's on the it's on the illicit side too. We uh we're gonna have a story here. A young man, he had uh, twenty pounds of marijuana in a house he was renting, and he got twenty three years in prison for twenty pounds of marijuana. Where in Michigan, I mean, twenty pounds of marijuana. I mean, I've probably seen twenty pounds of marijuana in the last year. You know, it's just it's just it's insane where these sentences are coming out of the you know how they're developed, and it's very interesting that that. There's a formula for the weight of the drug. Yeah. That is, it's a nifty, it's, it's a formula. Sense to me at but, all. Just, it's like somebody may, I don't know who's responsible for that, whatever politician or whoever is responsible for these things or judicial branch, but that is just the most ridiculous. Disgusting. Thing. Yeah. And these judges, the judges with no, I mean, well, I have to follow the formula. It, it, Ron, these judges, I mean, do they have to answer to anybody? Can they not change well, things? So judges have to answer to the appellate court. And, and I, I will say this. Um, in many of the cases I've dealt with, even with doctors who had to take a plea who are guilty, we've been able to, to, to challenge the drug weight. The government always assumes that every patient you've treated was unlawful and therefore the drug weight associated with that doctor should be that of his entire, his or her entire patient population. But typically we do a bit more analysis and say, Hey judge, listen, we know that this doctor acted poorly, but it was only with these specific patients and we're able to limit the sentence um, to, to a few years. So physicians, instead of getting 20 to 40 and, and Joel got, got 40, um, they may be getting, you know, three, four, five, in some cases, 10, um, I had a case of a, uh, a Russian chiropractor who owned three different uh, pain management clinics um, who was engaged in a conspiracy and pled guilty to a conspiracy going on for about six years. And, and he was in 15 years, um, a lot lower than Joel, even for that sort of activity. Um, so uh, when the judges hand down the sentences, you just got to make the right arguments to get that sentence a lot lower. And if you lay down and, you don't challenge it, you're going to get something like 20 to 40 years. So it's all about how you challenge it. Um, now, there are a lot of judges out there who are starting to understand that the drug laws and the sentences associated with drug laws are um, 
are old school. They're, they're, they're too high. They're um, remnant of sort of the nineties war on drugs theme where we just put drug dealers away for a long time and that'll cure society. And of course that's, that's failed. And so many judges are actually starting to sentence lower and disagree with um, the drug guidelines. So to their credit, there are many good ones, but there are a lot of judges still on the bench who grew up in an era where if the guidelines said, this is how you have to sentence um, a drug dealer or a doctor, then that's how we have to do it. And so they sort of adhere to the guidelines. Um, Mm -hmm. After 2005, judges were given the ability to make decisions freely and not have to adhere to the guidelines. But there are many judges that were on the bench for 20 or 30 years before then, and they tend to still do what they knew best and stick to the guidelines that they've supported for, for many, many years. So if, if a defendant, if a doctor has an issue with the decision of, of a district court, there's obviously the ability to appeal to the next level, but those appeals are very, very difficult. And that's what Dr. Smithers is going to um, undergo now. And uh, we hope he sees some relief. Okay. So one final question, because this is the question that doctors ask me, Um, who are the experts? Does, you know, who does he use for experts? Who does he use for experts? So for lay people out there, when the prosecution puts out their case, it seems like they have the same 10 experts because it's this, it seems like it's a insular community where this is all they do is prosecution of doctors. So you, you have your same prosecutors, your same expert witnesses, get on the stand, uh, discredit the doctor, and then you present your case and then you have your witnesses. And I would imagine it's the same bunch of experts that you have. That's that's right. So um, the, the the government typically uses the same experts. There's a a few of them, as you indicated. I think Dr. King and Dr. Thomas are are two puppets for the government that will go on the stand and testify against just about any doctor and, and tell a jury that they're engaged in criminal behavior. Um, the beauty about the government using those types of experts, those those puppets, is that there's a lot of information I can use to cross-examine those people. Like, for instance, Dr. Thomas went on the stand. He's a, a government expert who's used routinely, went on the stand in a case I fought down in West Virginia. And we were able to show the jury that he works out of an attorney's office. He doesn't actually practice medicine. He um, mostly evaluates people for, um, for disability evaluations. And He's a mechanic. His time, about 80, <laughs> yeah, about 85% of his time. Um, doing nothing but taking cases um, from the government and testifying against doctors and trying to put them in jail. And so once we showed that, obviously the jury didn't believe a single thing he said and acquitted those two doctors who were on trial. So I don't tend to use the same people all the time. And I I find that the best experts are those that situationally are best for that client. So if I'm trying Mm -hmm. a case down in a rural area of West Virginia, maybe Wheeling, West Virginia, where I've tried a case, I typically wouldn't fly in an expert from across the country to come in and testify. I'd find somebody who's got a bit more of a local flavor. Sure. Um, because, right. because I think that that would be a lot more credibility when the jury is asked to believe either a guy like Absolutely. Dr. Thomas who comes in from, you know, God knows where to testify or, or, or the local doctor. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, finding that's experts big. is tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because so a lot I of know, people don't want to get on the stand. Oh, it, you know, 
I remember we would have to fly doctors in to, te- we could never fly. We could never have doctors testify against other doctors in Rhode Island. It never happened in mm-hmm. medical mal cases. And that's why so few medical malpractice attorneys take on cases. But the, the final um, element of this is screening, you know, voir dire of the jury. And I don't think people understand if you're in West Virginia or some other place, like the deep South or wherever, you're putting someone's life in the hands of many jurors who have a limited education. And when you hand juries, uh, jury instructions, these people are so confused. They're so overwhelmed. And the only thing that a judge can do is, you know, read back the jury instructions. So, you know, you people have to come up, come up with a a good jury. And that in itself is, I know when I've sat in on uh, jury trials, I would say, oh my God, this man is going to prison for the rest of his life. These jurors, they would look at me. I would look at them. I would look at the judge confusion. Um, So that's another element that uh, most people don't understand what happens with a doctor is the juries. And boy, oh boy, you just, you better hope you you have some jurors that can tackle this. So a law school professor once told me a long time ago that, that in a jury trial, you just have to be the fairest of them all. You have to be the one who's always speaking the truth. You have to be the one that the jury turns to for credibility and, and you can't just get up there and spin webs and tell lies. That's not how you treat a jury. And uh, many doctors look at me and they say, hey, Ron, how am I going to get a good jury in a town like this? This town has been ravaged by the opiate epidemic. Um, everybody on this jury raises their hand to the question, do you know somebody who's died of an overdose? And, and, and I usually look at those doctors and I tell them, if I ask how many of them have had a close family member or relative denied necessary pain medication, they'll probably also raise their hand because in those same areas that have been impacted by the opiate epidemic, they're also being impacted by the government's misguided attempts to control the opiate epidemic by controlling what doctors can do. And so you can very easily flip the script on a story of a physician who's just compassionately treating patients by showing all of those people in the jury that these patients are real patients with real problems who needed real medication to deal with them. And I think that that will ultimately turn the tide against um, the DOJ when they're bringing these prosecutions, because make no mistake, in these prosecutions, the DEA or the DOJ, they don't want to put real patients on the stand. They don't want those heartfelt stories being told. And they don't want this doctor to look like he or she is actually a compassionate caregiver. Mm -hmm. And so the more you show that to the jury, the more they have to hide from it. Yeah, I just want to interrupt real quick. Claudia, can I interrupt real quick? Thanks. Uh, I just want to say everybody that's in the chat, we have uh, uh, Dev, Dev, DevX, GE, Christy, Manage Pain, UT, um, Christina Nunn, welcome, Melissa, BZP, uh, some of these names crack me up, Nurse M97, (laughs) uh, Jenny, Karma, Liz Holland, Rebecca, Shaggy, Michelle, BGTX, June, Everybody in the chat, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. We appreciate that. If you, if anybody wants to call in with a question, if you have a question for Ron, you have a question for Claudia, 
We'll keep it short. We'll keep it, you know, ask the question, uh, hang up, and then they'll they'll be happy to answer any questions you have. But we just want to say thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here on Easter Sunday and being, you know, part of this experience and this collaboration, because it's very important that we collaborate to beat this, to defeat this machine. It's going to take more than one person. It's going to take more than Claudia. It's going to take more than Ron. It's going to take more than some of the brave doctors out there. The Daily Attic Podcast, we're always tackling these issues of uh, unfair treatment and humane treatment. And uh, just thanks for joining us. But if you want to call in, go ahead and um, continue, Claudia. Yeah. You know, this interview has just um, inspired me because as an advocate, and after you watch Tiger King or uh, How to Make a Drug Scandal, you know, you're left feeling defeated. Like, oh, my God, is it worth it? Can I can I fight another day? Can I fight for doctors? This is where the Don't Punish Pain rally organization comes into play. And I, you know, Ron and I have had this discussion. And because Ron works for doctors, Ron has to be careful, right, Ron? You can't... Um, we don't work with each other, but we wanted to. And I called Ron. I said, Ron, can we get a graphic made up where the rally members can hand something to their doctors with your logo on it and like a 10 stop, 10 step process? Because three years ago, patients hated doctors when I came into this game. And I said, you guys, you have to understand your doctor is afraid to prescribe for A, B, C, and D. We have bridged the gap between the doctor and the patient. Um, and in order to continue our work, we need lawyers involved and we need lobbyists. So I, I called Ron. I said, Ron, what can we do? How can we maybe collaborate just so we can have Don't Punish Pain Rally, Ron Chapman Law, patient, all in the same room? So I think, Ron, that's a discussion that you and I, you know, we started to have. Hopefully we'll have it again. Um, because these people need their pain medication. Um, we have to stop the suicides. The suicides come in all day, all night. Last night, a lady contacted me from Leesburg, Florida, horrible car accident 30 years ago, quadriplegic. And her doctor insisted on her going into the office in the middle of COVID-19 for a urine sample. And she's catheterized. And it was a tricky process. Um, getting, you know, the tox screen accomplished, but these doctors have to do this to protect themselves. Uh, patients are still being forced to go into the office. And I said, I know why that's happening because they're not taking any chances. They're high prescribers. They're, they set up the, you know, the plastic partitions. They, you know, they've got the PPE on, but guess what? Two years from now, the DEA is going to forget about COVID-19, maybe look at some of your charts and say, wait a minute, you didn't see patients during this time. What What's your opinion about that, Ron? Do doctors have any leeway right now uh, seeing patients via telemedicine? Well, so that's a very, very good question. In fact, one that I've answered for um, a lot of physicians facing, facing COVID-19. So it's one of minimizing risk. And, and as long as the doctor appropriately documents that they're doing this, it's going to be just fine. Um, if, if you're in an area that is impacted by COVID, Detroit, I live in downtown Detroit, we're impacted greatly. And I would recommend that a doctor's office in downtown Detroit suspend the urine drug testing program for everybody but those incredibly high risk patients. Um, so mm -hmm. hopefully doctors are doing what's called risk stratification 
And, you know, grandma who's been on her little bit of Norco for the last 10 years because she's got some back pain shouldn't have to pee in a cup every month. That's just wrong, right? Um, but that person who's on a very high dose of oxycodone and maybe had some prior convictions or bad behavior or non-compliance in the past may have to come in a little bit more. And that makes, that makes sense. That's okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I would suspend the urine drug testing protocol for everybody but those high-risk patients. And for those high-risk patients, you would want to make a procedure that's a no-contact procedure so that the urine could be taken and tested at the lab and, and everything would be fine moving forward. What we're seeing these days is two things. First, doctors are scared to do that because they don't have anybody to talk to like me to tell them it's okay, and the DEA won't pick up the phone and answer that question. Um, but then also, lab testing brings a lot of revenue, and so there may unfortunately be a lot of physicians out there who don't want to have uh, the revenue hit from their lab testing and interpretation of samples, which is an unfortunate byproduct of medicine as well. When you're only making $40 a patient visit, that urinalysis on top of it is a nice extra few bucks. And there's many doctors out there uh, who don't want to see that go away, even in the midst of COVID. Sure. And, you know, I know a lot of um, doctors are charged with um, overutilizing Medicare services, which the general public hears that as Medicare fraud. Um, But Medicare fraud could be maybe doing too many urine screens or, um, you know, Medicare fraud, that's another field of law that you handle, correct? Absolutely. So usually when doctors get in trouble for overprescribing, the government also charges them for healthcare fraud under the theory that they're prescribing unnecessary medication to too many patients. Um, but there are situations where physicians who give injections to patients um, who are experiencing pain may also be charged with violating the Medicare rules in place for, for giving injections to patients. And, and we defend providers facing not just that, but all types of, of Medicare fraud. Uh, one, the main reason that I see um, healthcare overutilized um, currently is because of scared doctors. Um, they <clears throat> prescribe too many urine drug screens and test for everything. Um, if, if, if those pain patients that are out in the audience um, see that they're being tested for you know, metabolic steroids and all sorts of things on their urine test and, and paying a lot of money for it or Medicare is paying a lot of money, you may be the subject of fraud um, because doctors shouldn't be running large penal tests for all of those types of substances. Um, but that's usually the sign of a doctor who's scared. Doctors may overutilize injections to look like they're giving alternative pain management treatment. Sure, and all sure. of this can be avoided if a physician just sits down with a compliance professional, understands what rules are required of them and how they should operate, not, not how they should practice medicine, but, but how they should set up a compliance protocol in their clinic and they can learn where the line is so that they can make sure they don't step over it. Unfortunately, yeah. too many doctors are drawing, drawing the line in the wrong area and um, they're, they're following procedures that are putting patients at risk. Hey guys, right. we have, we have a caller in karma. Welcome to the show. Do you have a question? Well, I have a statement. Actually, um, my doctor, my pain management doctor, uh, when I moved to Georgia, uh, I had to find him and he's LLC'd. Um, He works for attorneys. You know, pain is a big, big revenue 
in Atlanta, car accidents, this, that, and the such. I was his first pain management person because I have cancer. Um, he is not afraid of, I had to ask his permission if to advocate. Um, I didn't want to um, stir stir the bucket of crap, so to speak. Uh, but um, he he gives me heads up. He has saved my life um, three times from other doctors that were fearful and they wanted to take my benzodiazepines away. Well, I have lethal hypertension and that's and it's every day. Um, he gives me heads up on why, uh, and I don't even know if everybody's aware of this, but in 2018, he said, beware, they're trying to push everybody towards methadone and Suboxone. And he has a Suboxone clinic. And I'm on... I'm on methadone for pain. Uh, Georgia has a limited amount. You aren't only allowed to be on methadone 30 milligrams per day. I was on 90. Mm -hmm. They yeah. took my patch away because of the fentanyl uh, hoopla. Um, I trust him uh, because he gets insights from his attorneys. I actually had one of my doctors uh, physically. Uh, he was drunk and he grabbed my breast and he was going for my genitalia. Oh, oh and, okay. Uh, All right. Okay. And uh, All right. he, his, his people, his attorneys helped me with that also. And Excellent. I think that him being LLC with these attorneys, uh, he's not afraid. And, and, and um, he, uh, he did the telemed with me. Everything went smoothly. Uh, I have two pharmacies because one is a little snarky with me. And the other one is, is an hour and 15 minutes away. But each, everybody's complied so far. But what I'm hearing from people I was listening to um, is that and I, I see it online as well, is that doctors are making people come in for P-tests. There's a six foot, um, six feet apart thing. I don't think, I mean, me of all people, I, I would be the one that would get it if, if in contact with right. it because I have metastatic cancer head to toe now. So right. I, you know, he doesn't do that to me. He doesn't even. That's wonderful. Karma, yeah. thank you so much for calling in. We I, And you stay well. You keep fighting. Thank for, thanks for your call. Yeah. You know, Ron, the fact is these people are up these bad, you know, so you look at it from a defense um, attorney's point of view. These people, if they're fortunate enough to find a pain management doctor, chances are they're not going to receive what they need to be, to live quality filled lives. They're going to be subjected to random pill counts. Um, and that's if they can find a doctor. Um, if a lot of these doctors give them this, they have a choice of Belbuca or the Suboxone delivery system, methadone, um, then they have to do the virtual pill counts and they're subjected to steroid injections. And then these poor people um, they're nervous wrecks waiting. Is this the day that I'm going to get caught off of my medication? 
then they drive to the pharmacy yeah. and that's that's where the real fun starts that's where they're treated yeah. you know, they're dehumanized um can we win this battle ron absolutely and I'll, and I'll tell you where the where the battle will be won it, it will be won by um physicians who aren't scared to prescribe by pharmacies who aren't scared to dispense um and by um, a, a federal prosecutor's office and a DEA that is a lot more prudent in their approach towards um, guiding physicians in, in the right direction. So there's, there's a few ways that we do that. First, patients advocate. Claudia, you're doing it exactly right. There's other groups out there that are have a similar tone, um, n- none as effective as you, I will say. Um, but the more groups that we can get out there of patients who are advocating to get to the press and start to change the public perception of this, the better. The next thing we have to do is the courts. Um, Unfortunately, just like the civil rights battles in the 1950s and 60s, um, this this battle is going to be fought by doctors who are facing jeopardy. Um, So we need to to take them to court. We need to win in their cases. And we need to show the Department of Justice that uh, going after doctors is not going to be as easy as they think it is and getting their money is not going to be as easy as they think it is. Um, Then the next thing we need to do is go to the legislature. And that has been a very difficult thing these days because it's very hard to get a congressman, a senator, a state representative to say, um, yes, I will stand on the side of pain patients. Yes, I will stand on the side of oxycodone and methadone and suboxone. It's very easy for them to say, we're fighting the war on drugs and the opiate epidemic is the fault of doctors. Um, right. Claudia, you're, you're handling the, the, uh, the, the pain advocacy side. Um, I'm, on, on, on behalf of doctors fighting in courts and, and the more that we can get lobbyists out there to speak to that level of government, I think that we can start impacting some positive change in this environment and bring right. all of these voices together for some common yeah. good. Yeah. And, and we have reached out um, to, you know, I've CC'd you on our lobbyist, um, but it looks yep. like we are the lobbyists now. And sometimes you just have to wait for your senators to fall ill. Uh, I know that's been, that, that was the case in Rhode Island and that's how I was able to get legislation passed here. Ron, I can't thank you enough. You have given me, uh, and I know Tim and Dave, like they're, I know you guys are really fascinated by this stuff and I know how much you love the DEA. Yeah, we, <laughs> we are fascinated. And, you know, this war on drugs that we cover so in depth and we have a lot of interesting guests, not only, you know, we have Ron and Claudia constantly, we have we had Dr. Feldman on. We have some other prominent guests coming up. We have Andrew D'Angelo. He's the uh, one of the co-founders of the biggest can- cannabis company in California. They're vertically integrated from every part. We're going to have Dr. Steve from Weird Science. He has a show on XM and Sirius Radio. We talk about these things constantly because they're all interchangeable. And people have to understand because I know the chronic pain patients, some of them are a little annoyed because we talk about addiction. And we're not putting pain patients in with addicts. I just want to make that clear to everybody. Okay. It's two yeah, different and things. That was, okay? Yeah, that was it's big. That's why things. we came together. A, a, a lot of a lot of chronic pain patients will look, you know, down, not really down, but kind of sideways uh at addicts because they think that maybe this is the addicts have created this problem for them. There's a lot of patients that have been taking maintenance uh, drugs for their, you know, for their chronic pain for many years. I think now. fentanyl has caused and the problem changed. for yeah, them. Fentanyl, there's been a lot of the stuff, but it's, it's, a, it's a product of this overall war on drugs. There's been a war on patients 
There's been a war on medical providers and pharmacies. There's been a war on substance abuse patients. There's, there's a war on all patients from either side, whether it's addictive, whether you're addicted because you suffer from emotional pain or whatever, or you're addicted because your physical pain is causing dis-ease. There's a war on safety. There's definitely a war on minorities through this thing, okay? The statistics don't lie. There's a war on parents because it's undermining parents and the way you raise your children to look at pain and addiction and medical. There's a war on housing. There's a war on your independence. There's think about what's going on. There's there's definitely the war on the dignity of these people. And then which is resulting in this, what we're discovering now from both sides, from the medical side, the addiction side, the ultimate nanny state. Okay. The war on freedom. Okay. They, they want to use these things to, to control. Now there's a criminal underclass that they can definitely control. And these things ruin people's lives. Sometimes you can be the most nonviolent, passive person, and you get involved, and you get, uh, like Ron has pointed out, the prosecution and the DEA have this wonderful case against you, and they're withholding information from the defense attorney, and you're a young person, and you get involved with this, and now your life is ruined because it's on your permanent record. It's going to affect your employment. It's going to work, uh, affect your statute with the community, the statute with your family. So uh, everyone, keep this in mind. Keep these things in mind. We're all here together to collaborate, to fight one common cause. Believe it or not, it's all intertwined. Yeah, yeah I, I, it is important. You know, when Tim and Dave and myself started to work together, Ron, we had a few barriers. Uh, you know, Claudia's, uh, you know, working, supporting addicts, but both communities deserve respect and dignity. And uh, we decided to collaborate to once again, bridge the gap. Uh, because, you know, groups like Prop and Andrew Kolodny, they, they pitted the communities against one another. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to struggle with addiction, and nobody wants to live with undertreated pain. So it's a, it's a happy, it's a happy herbals life collaborative, as I refer to it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well put. Hey, well put. Yeah. Hey, Ron Chapman. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a few things. Uh, Ron, if you want to hang up, you know, you can stay with us for a few more minutes. I just want to, you know, I want to tell the pain patients who are listening. Look, people, you need to hang in there because we are a thousand steps closer today than we were a week ago. House Rhode Island House Bill 7398. Uh, is now has passed the House unanimously. That's my legislation. And it has, rumor has it, it's going to be voted out of the Senate committee. I did this all without a lobbyist. I did this by knocking on doors and terrorizing my local representatives and senators. And you can do the same thing. You have to be persistent. When people say no, you, you teach them to say yes. Uh, you bring your experience to them. That's what I did. I just laid it out there. I don't. It's intimidating um, when you meet with when you meet with these people, and when I sit down with a doctor and I'm advocating for both the patient and the doctor. Um, that used to be intimidating. It's no longer intimidating, and you all can do the same thing I'm doing. Um, it's just you know, it's you can't accept no for an answer. 
what is happening to this community is wrong. What is happening to the doctors is wrong. And that's why we're here. And that's why the Don't Punish Pain Rally organization was created to give those um, a voice who didn't have a voice. And, you know, we live by advocate, educate, legislate, fight, defend. Uh, and that's what we're all doing here. So, you know, you're, we're going through some tough times, but we're going to get through this just like we got through, um, you know, your hospitalization stay. So those are my, those are my words. And don't forget to check out Happy Herbal's Life. Uh, Tim and Dave have a great CBD product out there. Dr. Feldman. Happy tried Life Herbals. Happy Life. <laughs> Happy Life Herbals. Uh, well, you know, when Dr. Feldman tried calling me, he tried to call me at three o'clock in the morning. That's how much he loved the CBD. And his wife, Linda, said, don't you dare call that girl at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and he was, um, he's like, I think they have to check their purification. I love this stuff. So, um, you know, it helped him. Of course, it's not a substitute for pain medication. Most of you who know me, I live a proactive life. I live by faith, fitness, fortitude. Um, I eat clean. Um, I CBD's diet. Clean. I do everything. CBD's clean. And if it works for you, great. Not saying, but you know what? Sometimes CBD, if your doctor allows it uh, in conjunction with your daily pain medication regimen, of course, with eating healthy, getting some exercise in, um, a little faith never hurts. If I oh, can cover I like the conversation. On the, the CBD, a lot of people that maybe tried it in the past, maybe they think it may not work because they bought some stuff from the gas station or the video store. Um, a lot of times that is not real. There's a whole bunch of. It doesn't, it doesn't contain 40% of the CBD product on the shelf today is under, um, under tested or tested under the amount that it says it has or has no CBD at all. And one of the things is if you've ever seen the CBD water that they have, that was tested virtually zero CBD in the CBD water. So all they did was bottle water and say, hey, there's CBD in it. So that's uh, Dave and I have come together. Uh, we formed this con uh, company with uh, other investors. It's Happy Life Herbals. We have quality CBD. There's a QR code on every single bottle that you can scan with your cell phone and it'll bring up the COAs, third lab, uh, third party lab results that show the content. Um, it's pure. We don't have any flavorings. We don't have any fluff. There's nothing in there uh, except for pure derivative from hemp, um, full spectrum CBD. There's a couple different things that you have to know about CBD. And we are in our, our website is full of information. You can find it online. You need to investigate these things for yourself because it's so new. The endocannabinoid system was only discovered in the 1990s. We didn't even realize the power, the power this plant held until the last 20 years, honestly. And we still don't, it's still understudied. It's still, uh, the science community is just really taking hold and getting the funding for a lot of this. So we need to uh, keep in mind that, that all the information that you can find on CBD, um, that you look at a lot of it's anecdotal, uh, anecdotal. Thank but you no, nobody, be, nobody believes anecdotal evidence. Just ask a pain patient. Huh. Right. Yeah. So it just um, make sure if, if you're going to try it, make sure you try uh, Happy Life. Uh, if you go there and, and put in DAP, 
uh, in the coupon code, you'll get free shipping um, right now. And obviously we're working um, for the first 20 people. Oh, for the first 20 people. Yeah. I need to do that. Um, and, and, and realize hey, these things. Yeah. I've read Hey, Ron, is Ron still here? Yeah. He's still here. Ron, well, what's your take? Is Ron yeah. Chapman still with us? So what, uh, you I'm know, still here. Yeah. are you familiar with Kratom? I am. Okay. So, you know, the FDA, they're hitting Kratom hard. They're trying so hard to ban it. And Kratom has not only given the addictions community a life, but it also helps a lot of pain patients managing their pain. But now the government is also going after Kratom. What are your, do you have any opinions on Kratom? You know, I haven't um, dealt with prescribers who are actively prescribing Kratom. I know that uh, the regulations around it are, are shifting and kind of difficult to, to understand. Um, I, I would consider any physician who's uh, operating in that world and prescribing Kratom to be uh, somewhat high risk given the scrutiny that's been placed on it. And uh, we need to be very, very careful. But that being said, um, you know, physicians are able to prescribe those things that are scheduled under the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, for the purposes that they believe are medically necessary and the government should not prevent them from doing so. Why yeah. don't we just get rid of the Control Substances point. Act? Wouldn't everything it, just be better if we eliminated the Control Substances Act? <laughs> uh, Ron would, wouldn't have a job, but... Well, no, hey, well, Ron's a very talented attorney. I'm sure he would be defending somebody. Um, Ron, I'll tell you what, Ron, I'm impressed. You're a prosecutor in the Navy, right? Marines, Marine Corps, yeah. Marines, and if people, he Ron's going to get angry if I say this, but ladies, <laughs> check out Ron's website because <laughs> if I was a lawyer, right? No, if I if I was a defense attorney and I had Ron Chapman and I was sitting in that jury box, I would be happy to see Ron Chapman present the case because it doesn't hurt. I can assure you that <laughs> when I used to see the angry attorney lash out and smash their hand on the desk and repulse jurors, because I would be repulsed by certain attorneys, check out Ron Chapman's website. He's a young guy. He's got it going on and he gets it. He so gets you have like all... a dating website too we can check <laughs> <Yeah>. out? <or? laughs> well, no, he, he gets all... Body and that's not easy, so... <laughs> Hey, Ron, but you know, Ron, you... are you from Michigan? Are you from Michigan? Yeah, or do is. you practice in Michigan? Or yep, I'm from from Michigan. Live in Detroit. Practice out of Troy, which is just a couple hours south of you. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. take care of yourself, man. Be healthy. Be safe. It seems to be That's the, the hot spot right now. Yeah, it seems to be yeah. the uh, the thing now. So yeah, yeah, how is this? How is this pandemic? And Dave and I had so many episodes where we covered this thing. I mean, we covered a lot having to do with this pandemic going on. So we're trying not to say the C word, the other C word, Claudia, the other C word. <laughs> uh, we're trying to not say the, the C word, but with this pandemic going on, how difficult is it for, for, for patients and uh, to get their medication? Because I can tell you in Michigan, it's not hard to get uh, certain drugs right now. I mean, we just covered a story. The drug dealers who deliver right now, business is booming. Because oh, they can't sure. keep it in because they're just driving from house to house, dropping it off. But how on the flip side, our patients that are, you know, waiting for their, um, you know, their substances from the pharmacies and stuff. How has this affected them uh, in what ways? I'm sure it has a big impact. But uh, what are some of the things you're hearing? 
Is that for Ron? Uh, it's for you yeah. or, or yeah, it's for you or whoever. I'm, I'm... Well, Claudia, I can jump in on that one. I, I know that specifically sure. in Detroit, I, I can tell you that controlled substances are um, transported usually by, by traditional mail um, to, to pharmacies and then, and then some other means, but the distribution channels um, have been um, a little slower lately. And so that's causing some drug shortages in major cities. Also, um, I, I imagine that the inability to conduct uh, what some people would call elective in-office procedures, um, but amount to back injections that relieve pain, might cause patients around the country to use more controlled substances, which I, I would likely, uh, well, I believe would likely cause some sort of corresponding um, increase in demand there, which, which will cause a shortage. And, and I know, Claudia, I think you mentioned that um, um, you're calling on the DEA to, to, to increase those quotas because of some of these issues related to the epidemic, right? Well, we begged a year ago, and uh, yeah. Sheldon Whitehouse said no. And, and I said, what if we have a, a catastrophic event? He said, well, we would just get medication from Connecticut or Massachusetts. I said, what if it's greater? What if it's too big? He said, that would never happen. Ah, look where we are. We're in a pandemic. Yeah. And we ran out of pain. We're out of pain medication. So uh, the DEA uh, and they're in, you know, uh, you know, thankfully, after they received the letter from the the board of anesthesiologists, the AMA has increased the amount of production. But why yeah. is the DEA, uh, you know, deciding how much medication and why did Autumn Dillon the head of the DEA, not take in, not take into consideration that there could be a catastrophic event. And this is why I hounded Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who sits on the DEA Oversight Committee. I said, if we have another station nightclub fire where 100 people perished, we wouldn't have enough pain medication. And I was laughed at. Here we are today. What a shame, right? What a shame. Yeah. Hey, Ron Chapman, I can't thank you enough. I am so glad that, um, you know, we sat down with Ron. Uh, don't forget doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs. Uh, so many of you contact me. And I know a lot of you contact me um, from random emails because you're afraid. Uh, we're going to get you over to Ron Chapman. We want to protect you because we know you care about your patients. And we want our patients to be well taken care of. So Ron, honestly, uh, you know, you took time out of your schedule on Easter. So thanks so much. I'm going to let the guys take out uh, this show because we've gone over seven o'clock. Well, let me just say thank you so much for having you. Um, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And, and by all means, if anybody out there wants to hear more about compliance and about assisting doctors in this fight, uh, please reach out to me. Please put my contact information in the show notes. And um, I'd be happy to answer any questions that come my way. So thanks again. Happy Easter to everybody. Thanks, Ron. And, um, thanks, be well. Ron. and you know, I'm getting texts from people. Can Ron represent me? Well, Ron is a defense attorney, so he's not. Um, I'm going to, you can reach out to Ron. Uh, I know I'm going to get a lot of text about this and a lot of messages. But Ron, um, folks, he specializes in, uh, he's a defense attorney. I think some of you are maybe looking for a malpractice attorney or maybe even a plaintiff's attorney. But yes, you can reach out to Ron Chapman. Is there a website, Ron, they can reach you at? Do you have a Facebook or something they can go to? Um, 
so www.chapmanlawgroup.com is the place to go. And then if you want to uh, see me, click on Ron Chapman the second. That's me. Uh, there's there's a there's a uh, a guy who's got my same name there, a little bit older than me, happens to be my father. Um, so just make sure you go to the second. Oh my God, that, that's, that's right! Me. I saw him. I sent him a message. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize I was your dad. You know, it's funny. He keeps looking younger and younger every year. So eventually, we're just yeah. going to look the same age, and nobody will be able to tell yeah. us apart. God bless. God bless. Yeah. And make sure you uh, check out Claudia at uh, Don't Punish Pain Rally uh, organization. And then also, uh, or the doctor patient patient forum. You can get a hold of her there. And uh, thanks. For an advocate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really really going out this time. We're really going to. All right. This time the music is really going to take us out. We're going to try it again. Yeah. Thanks everybody for joining. Make sure you go on and uh, write those beautiful reviews at iTunes, Google, Stitcher. Check us out on Podbean. That's how we do things. Make sure you check out Happy Life Herbals. Get your CBD product. You can also check out 989seeds.com because you never know when you want to grow some legal recreational.